This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Sola Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything by Keith Giles. You know, anytime you and I come to talk about God, we have to admit that we're talking about a being that transcends human understanding and comprehension. Therefore, we cannot have that conversation with any degree of certainty. We have to approach the topic from a place of humility. And so I invite you to join me in embracing the mystery of Christ and to discover the endlessly unfolding beauty of uncertainty in Sola Mysterium, available now on Amazon. How can you be part of a religious community that straight up Sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, but they don't even know the questions we're asking. The church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy And today, our very special guest is Dr. Andrew Whitehead. Dr. Whitehead is an associate professor of sociology at Indiana University. Is it and Purdue University or that's the whole name? It is the whole name, but this will be Indiana University, Indianapolis. So that Gotcha. Okay. And Dr. Whitehead, with his work and with his contributions, he's been interviewed on NBC News, NPR, and the BBC. He's also written for the Washington Post, Time, NBC News, and the Religion News Service, where he examines Christian nationalism, religion, and American culture, and childhood disability and religion. He's won multiple awards, one of them being the Distinguished Book Award from the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion in 2021 for his book, Taking America Back for God. That's where he makes a strong argument for for our need to take America back for God. So you can check in with that book. That's a joke, by the way. You'll get that for the rest of the interview. Um, He's won other he's won multiple awards. And Dr. Whitehead is also a project director at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture at IUPUI and a co-director of the Association of Religion Data Archives, which is the world's largest online religion data archive. I could say more, but I'm going to stop right there. Dr. Whitehead, thank you so much for being with us today, man. I appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to it. And we both are dealing with cold fronts. He told he told me it's seven degrees in Indianapolis. And actually, and this is real, we've had a serious cold front here on Oahu, which means it was like seven. They say it's 75, but if you're in the sun, it probably feels more like 78 or nine. So it's dipped a bit for us. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we were wow. still- <laughs> yeah. We were still at the beach yesterday swimming, but it was, I will say there was a slightly like colder kind of like onshore wind for us. That's like, if you can feel even a kind of a cold breeze in the sun, that's, that's a cold front for us here. Oh, poor, poor guy. I feel for you. <laughs> um, I, I want to start with you needing to enlighten me and tell me how, how wrong I am about something. And here's what it is. 
You know, for me, it was probably 2008, 2009, when I'm finishing my undergrad and just about to start grad school, where I was doing my own, I mean, you know, I'm early 20s and I'm doing my own serious waking up to the unholy matrimony between patriotism and the gospel and the idolatrous nature of Christian nationalism. And I was starting to study black and womanist liberation theology. So I'm going through this you know, shift and awakening, a reorientation, right? And enlightening of my consciousness to issues of institutionalized white supremacy, issues of systemic racism, the the ways in which white Christian nationalism is so embedded within this dominant consciousness of religion, specifically for white evangelicals, et cetera, right? So it time is an interesting thing. So sometimes for me, because that was a long time ago, and I don't really spend much time in like very evangelical spaces, to be honest. Like it can feel for me on an energetic level in my body, like, oh, like we all get this. Like that was a long time ago that that shift happened. And now that the shift has happened, it's assumed within our lives. It's assumed within our work and we continue to work. So I sometimes feel like the conversation, like that's, it can feel sometimes that's an old converse. Like we did that already. And now we're just continuing the work with that information. How wrong am I about that being an old conversation in most people and most religious people and most white evangelicals? They've already awakened to this and we're moving forward. Am I wrong in, in thinking that in my day to day? Well, you know, in some ways I think so. So when we... So I specialize in doing survey research of the American mm. public. And even though for myself, like you, this has been a journey that's, you know, well over a decade old of wrestling with this, my own history, that type of thing. And then I'm around folks who, for the most part, might see the world in the same way or mm. are continuing on their journey to wrestle with this. Mm. So it'd be easy in kind of my networks to assume like we are moving on here. We're, we're getting better. We're on our way. Um, but the beauty of, of national um, survey research, mm. um, the types of things that I collect is that we can look at, well, where's everyone else, right? And that can reflect back to us, the state of affairs. And so just with data collected this uh, past year in 2023, um, and, and this is a trend going back 15, 20 years too, but we see over and over that for white Christians in the United States, uh, particularly white evangelicals, um, we are not past um, wrestling with the issue of race and white supremacy. That mm. while it isn't, um, you know, destiny that if you're a white evangelical, you might be more likely to hold more racist attitudes. Um, the probability is high, right? And so mm. that's what talking in terms of if if i know you're a white evangelical the likelihood that you might think that racism is not systemic or that slavery mm. and its effects no longer hinders black mm. americans or um, when we're talking about the criminal justice system there isn't inequality in the criminal justice mm. system that it treats everyone fairly no matter their skin color these are still realities um and beliefs that white evangelicals hold so i think mm. you know I, I really appreciate your question and how you worded it because i think for a lot of us um continuing to recognize the work that needs to be done not only in our own hearts and minds and the way we see the world but um in kind of representing that um journey to others is still really important because mm. for a lot of white evangelicals 
they maybe are at a you know earlier stage of that journey or they haven't mm. quite started yet. Mm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it also goes to show for my non-academically oriented people, which is okay. Not everyone needs to get higher education in order to be enlightened or educated, you know, to make a difference, to love others well. For some people, that's a it's a great journey. It's not for everybody. But that is the uh, the gift of actual research and doing those things that people like me don't want to do is it reminds us. And there's two things I think of when you share those answers. One, when you talk about the difference between destiny or probability is for some reason in my conversation with my kids recently, I had to explain the difference between possibility and probability. Like, well, it's possible, but it's not probable. I don't know why. And so they keep yeah. saying this. Is this going to happen? They're like, it's possible but it's not probable. I'm like, actually, you're, you're right, right? You're five years old. It's actually pretty smart. And, you know, the probability of holding on to some of the illusions about American exceptionalism, not being able to have the eyes to see the ways in which systemic issues of institutionalized white supremacy work, et cetera, you know, being, it's not, is it a destiny? Of course not. You know, is it probable in these religious environments that people are still holding those things? Yes. And I recently listened to, to American idols. So, so Dr. Whitehead's podcast. So his, his newest book, American idolatry is what we're, is, you know, part of what we're talking about today, but also the podcast, American idols, um, I listened to, which one was just done so well. I'm so impressed by that. That was fantastic. But me listening to that, because it isn't just information, you know, it, that is more cinematic in a sense. It evokes emotion, you know, it's it's done so well. And that brings me back to be like, oh, this is, we're so, like, I'm just asking that question to get the conversation going. We're so not past that conversation. We're so not even like close for so many people to starting the conversation for the dangerous nature of Christian nationalism and identifying and seeing how ubiquitous, ubiquitous it is, especially for white folks in America. You know, that the podcast for people listening, American Idols is so, so good. It's such a great intro. And I think it really brings you into that world so well. Before that, what I don't I don't think I know this part. Yeah, I lo I I really loved it. How did you know I I could explain my own shift 2008 2009 what I'm reading how it feels what it's like I'm in Orange County at that time near Newport Beach it's like 92 percent white you know and how what it feels like to be there as I'm going through my own shift how did that happen for you and and what was it like when you first started sort of waking up to nationalism the church this is problematic but my friends and my family what is happening this is uncomfortable but it's real and i have to keep following this because it i'm I, i'm recognizing the truth of it how did that moment that first start to happen for you yeah definitely well thank you for the kind words about the podcast that's um really encouraging and yeah so for me this journey really started just growing up in the community, religious community and actual physical community I grew up in where mm. um, it was in Northern Indiana and, you know, a very kind of nominally religious place. Everybody is mm. kind of Christian, kind of mm. like everybody else. There's a lot mm. of homogeneity, right? With race and ethnicity and social mm. class. We're all very similar. We all kind of go to church. We all see America is great. We see that, you know, God has blessed America to be mm. a good American is to be a good Christian, to be a good Christian. 
maybe you got to be American, you know, those types of things are just taken for granted. Mm. And then in those religious communities taught what, um, you know, what it means to love people, right? Love your neighbor, love Jesus, love the Bible, sacrifice for people, give, um, be there for folks. All those things were taught. Um, but I think for me, part of that journey was then waking up to the boundaries around who your neighbor was. Mm. And we were taught to love our neighbors, but then we started to see, or I started to see as I got a little older and went to college and um, really kind of woke up to the, you know, politics, you know, as you become an adult, you just start to pay a little more attention to all that. Mm. And what Christians were saying and teaching and recognizing that they're saying to vote a particular way, but that doesn't sound like these values that we were taught to mm. love your neighbor and that our neighbor was anybody. Uh, your sound- freshman year college, you say to your sociology professor, you're like, um, excuse me, I think Ronald Reagan ended racism in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, yeah. You know, I write about my book freshman year in American history class um, uh, about the um, from the colonial period to the reconstruction, where a professor who specializes in religion in the founding period, he kind of was saying offhand, you know, the founding fathers weren't evangelical Christians like we see today. Mm. And for me, right, growing up evangelical Christian, it was kind of assumed like this country's always been maybe not exactly like us today, but about that, you know. Mm. And so those were moments that kind of pierced the veil a little bit and started to wrestle with, well, exactly what does it mean to love your neighbor? Um, and why do we draw these boundary lines around, you know, whether it's nationality or race and ethnicity or all those other things? And so I think that really began the journey um, mm. of of how do we expand this definition of who our neighbor is to actually love our neighbor. Mm. So, you know, those values and beliefs. And I think my story is really similar to a lot of folks that grew up in this religious tradition and grew up white um, where we didn't really hear about the the struggles or the hurdles that other racial and ethnic groups faced or other minority religious uh, Americans faced. Mm. Um, and and hearing those stories and recognizing those, I think that's when the disconnect started to become um, more apparent between what we were taught values and beliefs versus how it was being lived out. And so that mm. really began my you know journey of of wrestling with this, and then later coming to understand it, at least a part of it as uh, Christian nationalism um, and what that meant, and and how that helped bring some clarity to why there was that disconnect. Why mm. do we see? Um, these values and beliefs being taught, but yet limited to us, mm. right? We mm. should love over and above. We should make sure that this country works for a particular group that we're a part mm. of. So mm. that was a part of my journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that more. You know, there's for, you know, to be a Christian and especially for people who are clergy, for people who are pastors, I don't know if you know, it's like my wife and I were church planners. We led a church basically the past decade before we transitioned out of that role here in Hawaii. And, you know, there's this tension people can talk about. You can say it in different ways between like the prophetic and the pastoral, right? We're speaking uncomfortable. We're speaking truth to systemic forms of injustice and power, which are most of the time uncomfortable truths. That's why people don't want to hear them, right? So the truth is disruptive. The truth challenges the status quo. So the truth gets experienced as a disruption to a system that people who are benefiting from the status quo are quite comfortable with. And they don't want to hear you speak the truth, right? And then the pastoral oftentimes is the, 
yes, we're doing all this systemic work. I'm going to talk my shit. You're going to say yours. You probably wouldn't say it like that in the classroom, but we're going to be honest, right? But it's also people are people and they just had a hard conversation and they have this weird relationship with their siblings or their parents and they're healing and there's real day-to-day life and there's bills to pay. And in my 20s, when I'm in school, reading grad school mode, it's all prophetic. I'm just saying everything all the time, you know, much to the dismay of, you know, my mom who sees things I post. And, you know, thankfully over the past decade and spending my time in, in congregational life, it softens some of those edges, you know, it gives you different kinds of wisdom. It helps you think about the people more in the day to day, right? And not just saying sort of truth bombs from a distance. The reason why I bring that up is the shift a person might go through, a shift I went through, a shift you go through, a shift many people are going through. It's not just political, it's very personal, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just theological, it's communal and it's social. And there's real consequences, natural outworkings uh, of relationships that we have. So for you, that shift starts to happen. You can talk about some, maybe some of your own experiences, or you can zoom out stories in the book for other people. Why is it to, to, to see, like, there's a cost to seeing in life, especially when you act with integrity out of that scene, right? In an embodied way. Why why is seeing these things challenging or hard? You know, what is it? What does it mean for our personal relationships? What does it mean when I go back to my hometown in Indiana? What does it mean for relationships with old friends? How is sometimes this seeing there's a cost to it? What are some of the hard things that naturally arise from it in our real in our day to day lives? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful question and and such a important thing to keep in mind. Because I think you're right, a lot of this work in writing and and what we interact with even on social media or how we present ourselves sometimes can really only kind of dramatize the the prophetic, right? Calling out Mm. this that we've now learned. But um, I love how you put it where when we start to, um, you know, internalize that and live that out in community, it quickly becomes apparent we have to find maybe a different way to stay true to that. Mm. Um, But to live it out, right? You can't only just... Um, rely on this. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why is, as you share that is um, these things are wrapped up um, and really do represent parts of our identities and Mm. our identities are central to how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we make sense of our story, where we came from, who we're a part of, um, what groups we're a part of. And in the United States, you know, in, in the last several decades, you know, there's this kind of concept that, um, you know, social theorists are talking about where it's, they kind of liken it to identity stacking, where these different mm, identities mm. of being Christian, American, and all these other things get stacked one on the other. So when one thread gets pulled, they're all getting pulled. And I think mm. we're living in a moment where, you know, to say that you might disagree with one aspect of a political party or person, they think now everything is at stake or that you've let go of all the things. And so, for instance, to maybe question a you know a policy of a political, um, you know, uh, well, like question a policy of a, a main presidential candidate, um, they might wonder if you're still Christian, and mm-hmm. you know, so that takes a number of steps. But the reason is those identities have all been collapsed into one thing. So to be a Christian, you have to be a particular political party, 
and support them to this extent and this person and all these different things get added onto that. Um, and I think that makes it really difficult then too for us to have conversations and um, to recognize that maybe we need to disentangle some of these aspects of what it means to be not only a Christian, but an American, um, a global citizen, all these different things. Um, mm. And so that can make it really tough. And I think for the most part, what we know too about human nature is that it's difficult to deeply reevaluate mm. close to beliefs and identities. Mm. That takes mm. work and that's hard. And so for those of us perhaps who've been on this journey longer, being um, empathetic to the fact that that's difficult and it takes time and it doesn't happen overnight. And it isn't necessarily even too about here's a fact and now all of a sudden you're going to be persuaded, but that these are relationships and people have to work through it and it's difficult. Um, and so it can't just be this overnight, like I give you the word and then now you're going to go and just mm. fully. But um, I think being present and pastoral, like you said, is is a much needed other side of that coin to walk mm. with through it. Um, yeah. and, and that's the cool part. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in no ways does the, uh, and that's where the creative tension is and the wisdom comes from in no ways does the empathy and compassion for the personal dynamics, like, man, this person's got to go home at Christmas. This person has that uncle. And when they say this and, you know, talk about this thing, they're studying like that could end the relationship, even if it's not their decision, it just could. It could be the catalyst towards that person choosing to actually break fellowship and relationship. And that stuff's really hard. So for me, it's like, I want to be as aware of that as possible. And still, I'm also going to say the big things that need to be said, because that's just how this is going to, that's how it goes. You know, I still have to have integrity to do that and the compassion to understand, hey, I'm going to say this big thing, but also know that when you go home, it's very complicated. And I want to be sensitive to that as well. You know, that's a part of it. You know, when I think about the identity stacking, and I hear I heard you say that somewhere else, you know, and I've never heard that term, but it, it makes a ton of sense. You know, uh, the writer Ken Wilbur talks about how our beliefs are not just our beliefs, but a belief system is actually like a house for your ego. Mm -hmm. uh, thing you think about, you know, it's a house, it's a home. What What is a home? It's a place where we feel the most safe. It's what protects us. It's what grounds us. It's a grounding reality. And so when you challenge, whether it's a belief structure, like in religion, or the beliefs and identities we have in terms of how identified we are with our nationalist identity or whatever it is, or a, a particular commitment to a view of America, you know, America is this divine, you know, sort of manifesting thing of God creating this world, that when you challenge the belief structure or the stacks of those identities, that is you're challenging that which makes people feel most home and most safe and most like themselves at that yeah. point. And so, you know, Wilbur talks about how the ego experiences like a death seizure. So people, when you challenge that, it can register in their bodies as like, you're actually, this is like, it's a death thing that's kicking in. Like you're challenging that, which is most true about me. So if you're saying this, it feels like you're actually trying to like take away from me that which is most important, which you are. You're also saying there's a better life beyond that, especially if you're committed to the way of Jesus. Yeah. You know, you, you say in the intro, you write in my own journey, much of, much of which is reflected in this book. I've come to believe, I actually just read this to my seven-year-old because when I was preparing this, she was like, can you read that part to me? I was like, uh, 
okay, I think it's safe enough. (laughs) Um, But so Dr. Whitehead writes, in my own journey, much of which is reflected in this book, I've come to believe that in order to faithfully follow the teachings and example of Jesus of Nazareth, I must work to disentangle Christianity from Christian nationalism. The two cannot coexist. I must serve one or the other. That's a that's a very bold statement, one that I'm aligned with. I agree with. I think, you know, making those decisions is very important and crucial to be faithful to the way of Jesus. Why now more than ever does that seem to be so, you know, pertinent and felt and palpable for people on a cultural level right now? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with, again, coming back to my vocation as a social scientist and you know, as I look at different ways to measure Christian nationalism among the American public and seeing what it's associated with. So whether we're looking at views towards um, immigrants and refugees or views towards um, race and ethnicity, like we discussed earlier, um, we're looking at views towards uh, women, we're looking at views towards the environment or healthcare or anything like that. When I start to see that evidence stacking up. I think that's where it brings me to kind of this crossroads of if I'm going to continue to believe that the U.S. should be distinctively Christian, and again, according to a very particular expression of Christianity and that the government Mm -hmm. should hold that, um, when I start to see that and I see what it's associated with, again, I see this disconnect with um, this vision of the gospel that I believe Jesus came and lived out um, and and tried to show us uh, the way forward with where it isn't about yourself and it isn't about your group, but it's about a flourishing for all people um, and ensuring that um, everyone has access. So he came to again in uh, Luke, you know, his first recorded, uh, at least in the Gospels, his first recorded message there, where he's talking about freedom for the oppressed and the poor mm. and the blind. The uh, those that are in harm's way. So I, when I read that and think about the gospel having implications for the here and now and for the physical embodied livelihoods of everyone and our um, spiritual relationship with God and, you know, what that looks like in the future, but that it has implications for the here and now. Um, I see over and over with Christian nationalism, it really is focused on protecting us and privileging us and ensuring that this group, the we, has access to all those things mm. at the expense of those that we think are the them on the outside. Mm. So that boundary maintenance and you know division and defense, I think that is antithetical to the gospel. And so mm. I think that's where um, and again, it isn't this binary, you know, one day and then the next, you know, you're right. fine and you're on your way, but that this journey of trying to find okay, exactly. How do I disentangle this? How do I start to live toward this vision of the gospel um, and less toward this this other vision um, of the gospel that just is overly spiritualized just for the future, just Mm -hmm. for us, um, that Christian nationalism, I think, um, over and over empirically pushes us towards. And so I Mm. think that's where the the divide happens. Um, Mm. That evidence gets stacked up. And I, you know, at some point it demands you know, a response. And I think that's where I've come to uh, in my journey. Mm. What are some of the most visible 
taking for granted symbols and expressions of Christian nationalism that we might see around us in the United States of America? Yeah, that's a great question. So I try to lay out some of these visions or or kind of a field guide, right, for mm. Christian nationalism. So what what could you look at <laughs> see around you? Um, right? like so that. yeah, so in Hawaii, like people go here, out guys. And, here's a map. Oh, look over there. Look, that's what white supremacy looks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just to notice, right? Like how how do you make sense of what's around you? And um, you know, one that I start with in the book uh, is. And again, it isn't always indicative of a congregation broadly embracing Christian nationalism, but seeing the American flag in the sanctuary at the front. Mm, mm. And so I I say this with a caveat that I have a a good friend, uh, a pastor who's leading a congregation, and there's a flag in the sanctuary. And he, I know, is committed to, um, you know, moving away from Christian nationalism, um, wants to push the congregation towards um, being for all people, mm. right, in the community, neighborhood, world, all that stuff. Um, but, you know, to the extent that a congregation, you know how much the American flag means to a congregation, mm. um, if it's up there, by imagining, well, how would people react if we took it out, mm. right? So we know our idols when they start to get shown to us. And so mm. in a congregation, taking it out, would people be upset? Why would they be upset? Right. And try to really start to think through, well, what does that mean then? Right. If, um, because for those who are coming, let's say to the States and sitting in our congregation that aren't American, how would they feel if they were a Christian, but then seeing the flag up there, or how would maybe one of us as Americans feel if we went to a different country and we see that national flag right at the front, right? What would it mean for us? Like, do we truly belong in this community of believers? If, Mm. We aren't that nationality. And so I think mm. working through some of that, is it just this sign of that you are, you know, on, on the wrong road? No, I wouldn't say that. Can you have, have a flag in the church and still, you know, move towards a gospel of, of flourishing? Yes. Um, but does it create some issues? I think so. Is it a stumbling block? It could be, right? And so really working through that, I think is important, um, wrestling with that. So I think that's one one sign, the God and country services that mm-hmm. we'll see, you know, around the 4th of July, mm-hmm. um, how we think about and talk about the United States. So I visited a number of those in writing the first book with Sam Perry, Taking America Back for God. And I remember distinctly, you know, in the, the 4th of July service where the narrator for that service was talking about how um, God has always been on our side as a country. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. As we celebrate, as they were celebrating the different military branches. And I was like, that is an incredible claim. (laughs) Look at the different military (laughs) endeavors of the United States to say that God has always been on our side. Mm. Um, And that should give us pause as Christians Mm. um, Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. So those are are some. But then I think, too, the messages we hear from the pulpit are another guide indicative. So when we're are, are these messages that push us towards fear and anxiety, right? Mm. If we are in our place in the world or of them, are there these enemies and others outside of us? I think, you know, one way to encapsulate it all together is, you know, are we being discipled into this view that it's us for the world or us against the world? And so mm. as we're listening to these messages, what does it engender in us? Am I mm. feeling fear? Like touch, you know, get in touch with what emotions are coming out and why, 
Are we getting afraid? And that can happen on either side of the political spectrum. Mm. Um, fear is a powerful political tool. Um, and so, mm. again, is it pushing us to fear and be against the world or to push us towards empathy and, and wanting to be for the world? And so mm. those are some of those, I think, touch points that um, can help us at least start to see, okay, is this pushing us towards this definition of, of Christianity where we need to defend it. We need to take this country back. We need to really be careful that we're going to lose this country that is ours and the privileges that it gives. Or do we see ourselves as, you know, citizens of a different kingdom Mm. that should be for the flourishing of those around us, but Mm. um, that our lines of of brother and sisterhood and family don't end at the national border. Mm. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I think field guide, you know, having things like that, having the eyes to see, because it is challenging to get people to think about issues of race beyond just individual bigotry. Yes. Where you're like, that's not the primary issue here. And actually, those things getting less intense and hostile actually has more power to mask the ways in which this is all working behind the scenes through institutions, through networks of power, through institutions, et cetera. For sure. But when I think about signs and symbols, like I, I live in Hawaii. It's like one of the most militarized places in the country. Like on, on our island alone, there's four military bases. The military mm-hmm. makes up 25% of the economy. I don't know if it's Hawaii as a whole or just our island. So the military presence is overwhelming here. You know, and the history of colonization in Hawaii is unique because it's so recent. Mm. You know, so technically, you know, politically, Hawaii is the 50th state of the United States of America. Some people would say, well, Hawaii is not a state of the United States of America. It's under military occupation by the United Mm. States of America. And Mm. I that makes sense to me. And I agree with that, that statement in terms of what happened here and how the land was stolen, how colonization happened. So for me, like my, my wife and I both surf, our kids surf. And I can't remember if I just thought this or had this conversation with a friend, but I definitely have thought about it. But if I did have it with them, like I'm surfing with a friend and like jets, I live near the airport. I live like in sort of urban core Honolulu. And, but there's also jets that fly over here all the time because there's a military base not far from here. And they're so they're loud, you know, and they're fast. And if this happened, I think it did. I remember surfing with a friend and I'm like, these jets fly over and maybe he made a comment about just how amazing they are, you know, just standard stuff, you know. And I'm like, if you have a view of America as like American exceptional, God's tool for, you know, democracy or whatever it is people say, which for me are absolute like illusions and delusions, to be honest, you know, about the, the history of our country and the, its role in the world. I'm like, that is a symbol of freedom. It's a symbol of hope. And that's helping. That's why people get emotional. And these people, people who are that's, you know, in the, the Christian nationalist assumed worldview, whether it's conscious or not, these are symbols of great joy and freedom and elation and the highest form of humanity, if you will. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm like, or if you are a part of an oppressed group of people who have been under on the underside of power, who have been oppressed, who have had things taken away, who have been oftentimes dehumanized or demonized by this large institution, this country, et cetera. I'm like, 
that's not a symbol of hope. That's a symbol of oppression. That's a symbol yeah. of a stolen land. That's a symbol of a lost history. So, you know, when you start to see and make those shifts, those field guides and things like that are helpful because it's like, in that worldview, you take for granted that, oh, that's what that is. You know, jets fly over at a sports game, a tear drops down grandpa's eye, you know, and basically we're having, a, it's a church moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I remember even my first semester, my first quarter in grad school, my teacher who was very, 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 very critical of Christian nationalism as a, as a Christian. And he was talking about St Stanley Hauerwas at Duke, you know, who's not a big fan of Christian nationalism. But he was talking about the, you know, liturgies and cultural liturgies and how they form us and how they shape us, the symbols, the, the pledge, the pledge of allegiance and all these things. <clears throat> and he said, Stanley Hauerwas says that the pledge of allegiance is a war hymn. Or no, I'm sorry, not the pledge of allegiance, the, uh, the national anthem. Yeah. And I'm like, and you start to think about it, you know, like the bombs bursting. We're like, yeah, like we're yeah. singing is that i mean to me i'm like i look around and people would find that problematic i'm like but isn't that what this is we're literally celebrating and venerating war in this whole thing we've done to get where we are but is what wait is it like what to, do you have have you ever i don't know if in your writing or thought about things like national anthem pledge of allegiance what roles do these have how do they shape us are there problems there you know is there is how nuanced is that, you know, in terms of our identities and stacking them, but also being Christians? Yeah, for sure. No, I think as Christians, we should think deeply about um, everything we start to take for granted. Um, and I want to highlight a really important point that you made where it's only when we begin to listen to the voices of those who have had mm, different experiences in exactly. us, especially those that have been on the margins or oppressed. Mm -hmm. They're telling us different stories exactly. to listen to those and just to take a beat and to fit, sit and think through what that is, what's being said, what that means, how that might make us feel. And instead of, I guess, moving quickly to the feeling of attack, mm. um, maybe just to sit with and try and empathize with that. Um, because I think, you know, as you point out, it's only until we get, begin to hear those stories that we can start to see the world with new eyes. Because as, you know, I didn't choose to be born American, you know, right. I didn't choose exactly. to be born um, with, you know, this uh, gender or sexuality or mm -hmm. skin color or anything. Um, but here I am and here I find myself. And this world has been set up in such a way that for the most part, um, there's not a whole lot about me and my embodied experience that sets me in the margins, right? Mm -hmm. I mostly am right down the middle and, and stuff works in my favor. Um, and so it's only until I start to hear those stories that I can then see, well, not everybody has that experience and not mm -hmm. everybody feels the same way. And yeah, I think, yeah, you're pointing something out that's really important is um, these symbols and rituals maybe it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. Maybe mm. there are different experiences that we need to listen to and think through. And then as Christians to start to try to make sense of what that means for us and how mm. can we love our neighbor? And again, it always comes back to this question for me of, uh, you know, who is our neighbor? 
Mm. Right. And how broadly do we define that category and what does that mean for us? And so I think that's the ongoing work. And I think one of the quickest ways, it's not quick, but to begin that journey, it's a quick start is um, to begin to to listen to those stories and empathize mm. with those experiences and start to try and see the world through those new eyes, recognizing that we all all have blind spots. Um, mm-hmm. None of us has a complete view. Um, one way that Greg Boyd puts it is our map is not the territory, right? We all have these maps that help us make sense of the world, but just because it's on our map doesn't mean that that represents the whole territory. And we mm-hmm. need other people in their maps to help us learn, grow, develop. Um, and I think, yeah, to live out um, true, um, being true neighbors to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. You know, you in in the in the book you talk about the and I think this is really important. You talk about the three idols of Christian nationalism, right? Power, violence, and fear. Yeah. You know, and how and again, listening to the podcast, I can't recommend it enough to people, you know, American Idols. It's it's so good. And I think it takes this conversation we're having and just expands it, opens it up, and brings you into it in such a profound and also like really uh interesting and intriguing way power of violence and fear and again it's one of those things i'm removed enough you know in my in not day-to-day interacting with you know and i'm I'm in hawaii i'm so far i'm on the i tell people i'm on the edge of the earth right here like i'm on the most isolated landmass on the planet i'm i'm two blocks from the ocean right now i'm looking at like seven hours to japan five hours this way this is like i can't fly anywhere in less than five hours right i'm geographically disconnected in some ways culturally and our day-to-day political life is different from you know what people call the mainland as well so it's a different experience but when i listen to your podcast i'm like oh man like the the fear mongering you know and how it's used in in politics and the potential threats of violence that are looming you know around us which are real things and the obsession, you know, with power, you know, and how that plays out. Tell me, how, how do those three idols look and feel to us right now? Even with the fear, like Christian nationalism and fear, what is the relationship there for people, for people in power right yeah. now? Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, those three things, power, fear, and violence are not the only idols of Christian nationalism, but I think they're the three uh, main main ones that to understand Christian nationalism, we have to wrestle with those three. And idols, you know, from our religious tradition and, and probably others, but especially within Christianity historically, or this idea that anything that we turn to besides God for provision and sustenance and and um so when we believe these other things will help us meet our needs or to show us the way. Um, but when we turn to those things, they demand our allegiance, right? We have to give something up for that provision and protection mm. that we want. And so with power, power is the ability to get others to do what you want, Mm. um, despite resistance. Mm. And so power, I think, is a key idol of Christian nationalism, because at the center of Christian nationalism is, again, this desire for privileged access to power, to be able to Mm. make make the world as we want it to be. Because ultimately, um, I think at the very root, um, we don't necessarily trust (laughs) the fact that um, God is Absolutely. in control or that exactly. God is working through us or the world um, in different ways to to bring us to where we need to go. And so, um, again, there's this, I think, a false dichotomy of, well, if somebody's in power, it might as well be us. 
Um, and I hear that sometimes um, as Christians. And, and I think that that is giving into this um, seductive nature of power. Um, mm. So to the extent that we want and desire power, this privileged access to make the world what we believe God wants us to make it as, um, we're always going to then fear having power either taken away or denied mm. access to that. Mm. And so fear is a natural outgrowth of making power the center of what we're trying to do. And, and so if you have it, the fear is that it could always be taken away, right? It's viewed as this zero sum game. If I don't have the power, somebody else does. And what? how might they treat me? Or how might they hurt me? So right. I need to get as much power as I can. So fear is that natural outgrowth. And so then I think those two build in the sense that whenever um, we are afraid um, of power being taken away, uh, it creates this moment where then we have to be afraid of a particular other, right? There's right. always someone else coming to take that power. And so it draws right. these boundary lines. And anytime we're drawing these strict boundary lines around us and them with fear that the them is going to take our power away and harm us, violence is a natural result that we're naturally going to turn toward um, and embrace these actions that allow us to keep the them at bay. And I think that cycle has been a part of our history, um, not only our nation, which it clearly has been a part of this nation's history, um, but also Christianity at large. There's nothing necessarily unique about the United States and the fact that there's religious nationalism here. Um, throughout history, we see Christianity being used in different countries, and there's nothing unique about our country that um, Christianity has been used in that sense. Um, other countries in, in the world today or throughout history have as well. And so I think it's recognizing that this is um, an issue that is uh, so easily uh, comes to the surface in political life and human life. So then, then I think it, it makes it to where we can understand the real depth and breadth of it, mm. um, but also recognize that it's a part of our, it's a part of the work that we do, right? Mm. It's a part of what it means to be a Christian, to be a human is to hopefully recognize um, the, the pull of those idols and to resist them, to try and move in a different direction um, and know that this is part of what, what we've been called to, I think um, throughout history. So mm. those are the main idols and they really do build off of one another. Mm, mm, mm. Yes, the the irony, you know, irony is a funny thing to me because I just see it everywhere. And uh, the forms of ironies that are very tragic and hilarious at the same time. Right. Tragic because of the real harm that it does and destruction it causes in our world and hilarious because it's so obvious that it's not seen that I have to I have to be able to laugh at it, you know, even in the midst of grieving over it and speaking out against it. But the irony of so many Christians using tools of the very kinds of power Jesus critiqued to obtain the, the very kind of power Jesus continuously mocked and exposed as impotent. And yet it's all the, the, one of the, sound clips in the podcast that was used, I believe, in each episode in certain parts was one during a speech where Trump's basically promising Christians when he's in office, they're going to have power. And I'm like, oh, like, that is so 
it's so on the nose it's not even hidden <laughs> like it's right. so obvious and you know that's where trump just sort of says the things that have always been there you know for people there's a lot to say about that the past you know eight years or whatever but it's sure. so not even being hidden of like you will get power and people and people are like yes you know this is what we wanted this is what we've always wanted this is what this is about but the tragic you know nature and the comedic part of that irony that i continuously see is it's it's for me it's a it's a through line in many ways you know for me to continuously see with clarity but also remain grounded in the process and not cynical or angry you know during during this journey yeah. you know i wasn't planning to ask that but how do you you know our personalities cope and deal with things differently depending on this is you know what happens to us when we're young how we respond to life etc and my natural coping mechanisms in life and my default personality are not anger and control. It's cynicism and withdrawal. Mm -hmm. That would be more my way, right? I quietly just say, F it, that's ridiculous. Let me just have a couple friends, you know, have, you know, I have my family and just chill and not really be engaged, right? How have you and how do you when you're you're obviously highly aware of a lot of the things that are problematic, dangerous, you know, you're making the claim that Christian nationalism is a threat to the churches, it's a threat to the you know truth of the gospel or something, however you would say that, a threat to democracy, I believe, you know, I don't know if you said that, but I would say that. Um, yeah. How do you, and this is more, more personal remain hopeful and energized through this work to not just cynically name that which is wrong like so many grad school students do you know it's kind of before you really it's before it's incarnational and embodied where does that sort of everyday grounded hope come from when you see these things and talk about these things and write about these things and you're immersed in these things yeah <laughs> well that's such a good question and to be honest um you're all, to be honest, I don't have it, any. <laughs> it's, it is. It's really hard. And yeah. I think, you know, a couple things um, do give me hope. One is recognizing more and more that I'm not alone on the journey, right? So meeting people like you or folks that reach out, you know, through email or leave reviews and they just talk about this was encouraging or this, you know, while challenging it, it gave me hope or, or you know, a vision for whatever. And, and those really help right? Or knowing others that are writing or are working towards a world where we're less about trying to circle the wagons to protect us, but to be for other people. So just knowing that I'm not alone in this work, I think really helps. Um, and then I think too, some of the wisdom of those who have been engaged in this work for longer than I have is just like stepping away from it when you need to and recognizing that the work goes on without mm -hmm. you. And it's not mm -hmm. as though I'm center to this at all. Mm -hmm. um, whereas you start to wonder or believe not that you alone can save it, but that if you're not actively doing everything you can at every moment that you're somehow not doing enough. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a lie as well to where, yeah, trying to live into the hope um, of the gospel where mm -hmm. this work continues um, no matter what. And and for me, my value isn't in me doing the work, but um, that I already have value and, and that um, I can move out of that rather than this need or desire to um, save something, right? That ultimately it's just not in my power to. So 
I think those are some of the ways that I try to, but yeah, it's easy to be cynical and it's mm. easy to lose hope, but then mm-hmm. you reading the stories and I try to end the book on a note, um, kind of answering this question too, where, you know, looking at, for instance, the civil rights movement in the United States, where there were people um, giving their lives and working towards mm-hmm. this end, um, but never actually saw the day come, um, yeah. you know, for, mm-hmm recording this on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, where we're all remembering his sacrifice and how he was murdered for his witness, right, Mm. to a different world, not only for Black Americans, but for white Americans, right? Mm. This Mm. these ideologies twist us and they Mm -hmm. us. And he was trying to find freedom for for all of us. And so um yeah, for those that they they stay true to the work. Um, mm. and that was what it was about together rather than wanting to, to necessarily get to some finish line. Cause I don't know mm. that the work is ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways that could bring, you know, nihilism, but I think in another way, um, it can bring release and hope where mm. this is a part of what it means is to, to be human um, is to recognize that there's always work to do to bring flourishing and mm. um, loving our neighbor and expanding the boundaries of who our neighbor is um, for as long as we're around to do that. And so mm. those are some of the things. Yeah, no, it's great. Well, I like that. No, it is because it is, it is hard. You know, it's, it is genuinely hard to sustain joy when you're taking seriously a call to love this world and especially when that involves speaking uncomfortable truths to this world and seeing that, you know, I've shared this story before on the podcast, but I want to share it with you as we end, um, you know, the sixties, you know, two people who I loved, especially, I still love to this day, but especially when I was younger, were the, the Berrigan brothers, the radical priests of the 1960s, you know, um, protesting the war, breaking into the Pentagon, burning draft papers with homemade napalm on the run. Like these were like my heroes, right? In my 20s. Yeah, yeah. And I still love them. And near the end of Daniel Berrigan's life, he's living like in some Jesuit community in New York City. And, you know, someone, I think it might have been Friar John Deere, who's sort of continuing their work now and great activist. And I think it was him who asked them, them, it could have been someone else, like asked Daniel, like, how do you stay hopeful? Yeah. Because He's like this, the, the cultural revolution of the 60s and that social awakening and this this sort of peace movement is like on a practical level, it didn't really go where you thought because America is still living in a constant culture of war. You know, it didn't create I don't know if they were thinking about utopia, but it didn't go where they probably thought or hoped at that time on a concrete level. Yeah. You know, he's older now and he just said, you know, in order for me to sustain hope i have to do hopeful things mm-hmm. you know it's like these small spaces of resurrection these small spaces where you're concretely connected with others in an embodied way doing hopeful things whether no matter how small they are it's something about the the mystery of the unity the connection the shared mission and purpose of that moment mm-hmm. of people who are still daring to imagine a different future are still organizing and working for that, whatever those versions are like the, the, the 26 year old intellect in me is like, I don't like that answer. Cause I just want to think about it more or read about it, you know, or write. Yeah. 
but it's actually it that's the connection the communal part of it is like you find hope by actually being in hopeful spaces you continuously believe in the power of resurrection by being in these small pockets where resurrection is happening around you and you keep seeing it you know and that yeah. for me with my propensity to cynicism and withdrawal is like something i have to hold before me all the time and i've experienced again and again i'm like why is this, I'm in this small bar listening to this music or whatever it is. I'm like, man, like somehow we're going to be okay. But that's how it is, you know, like yeah. those types of things. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. I appreciate you so much. I love, you know, that, uh, that works like this, you know, are, are more and more common and they're more and more in the social imagination for people. Yeah. I think it's yeah. so important, you know, so I appreciate, you know, your courage to keep doing the research and writing about it. I know I can imagine it's for the next podcast, all the awkward conversations when you tell people in Indiana, the title of your book, Hey, just that alone is a part of the cost to speak. <laughs> yeah, totally. But yeah. Um, the podcast I've been referencing multiple times, American idols. You can look it up wherever you get podcasts. The most recent book by Dr. Whitehead, American idolatry how Christian nationalism betrays the gospel and threatens the church is his most recent book before that it was taking America back for God. Was that the right title? Yep. Yes. Yeah, so, Oh, they're both behind you. I didn't even, I, I just saw that right now. I forgot about that. So yes, those are two, three great places to start the recent book, American idolatry. And then the podcasts are, are the podcast. I just really want people to listen to. It's so good. Besides that, is there a way for people to tap in, follow along, pay attention to next things, things you have going on? Yeah, definitely. Um, no, I appreciate that. And the kind words and encouragement there about the work. Um, yeah. So I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm kind of moving away from Twitter because of what it's become. Um, so social media, Instagram is where I'll continue to to find myself right now. And then to started a Substack newsletter. So Andrew mm, Whitehead nice. Substack, and it's named after the book. So American Idolatry um, is the title of that. And so I'll be posting there. Um, and so those are the two best ways, yeah, to get in touch or stay in touch. And uh, yeah, so really appreciate the opportunity to be here with cool. you. It's good to be connected. Yeah, man. No, I'm happy to do that. Thank you again. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll uh, we'll talk again in the future. Yes, hopefully in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> if not, I'll just put the Zoom like I have it right now. You can see the yeah. sunshine while it's seven yeah. degrees. Uh, cool, man. Thanks. Have a, have a great rest of your day. All right, you too.